Welcome to Fellowship Podcast. We're so excited you tuned in. For more information about who we are, check out our website at fbclife.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, church. Man, it's really good to be here with you guys this morning. We love getting to worship with you. Hey, afterwards, you can, you can uh, uh, thank the band, man. They've been working really hard to want to lead us to the throne so that we can worship our God with hands raised high. So they've done an awesome job. Hey, here's what we said last week. You and I, we need hope. In this relatively hopeless season that we call 2020, what we've seen in our culture is just a whole slew of people flailing about trying to find hope somewhere. Some people have tried to find hope in politics in this season. Some people have tried to find hope in substances. Others have tried to find hope in anxiety or mindless media consumption or blissful ignorance. And every one of those sources of hopes, friends, it overpromises and it underdelivers. But Malachi, a prophet from 2,400 years ago, gave us a message last week, a message astonishingly relevant for us in 2020. Malachi proclaimed over us that real hope is found in a person. You see, there is someone who will not overpromise and does not underdeliver, and, and hope is found in him. You see, Malachi proclaimed over us last week that hope is found where God is, and God has chosen to draw near to his people in love. Think about that. Like the God of the universe, the God who created everything that is, has chosen to initiate relationship with his people, has chosen to draw near to his people. And Malachi has chosen to start a conversation with his people. And the content of that relationship is love. God proclaims over us as he's proclaimed over his people throughout all of history. I love you because I've loved you. Now, what you have to see is that this sets Christianity apart from every other way of doing life. You see, every other way of doing life would tell you that hope is found in circumstances. Like if success is the thing you're ultimately pursuing and your circumstances tend to be leading to your success, then you'll have hope. If your circumstances tend to not be leading in that direction, then you'll be hopeless. If what you're ultimately after is pleasure and there's a party on the horizon, you'll have hope. If a pandemic has shut down your ability to go to parties, then you'll be hopeless. If what you're ultimately after is finding the one, like the one, and you have prospects, then you'll have hope. If your prospects seem to have dried up, then you won't have hope. And what's happened in 2020, what's happened in our culture is that all of the things that we have normally looked to for hope as a culture, they've taken a turn for wor the worse all at once. And so what we've had to do is one of two things. Either we can look to a new set of circumstances to find hope, but those circumstances will overpromise and underdeliver too. Or Christians have another option that we can proclaim to our culture. What if hope was never meant to be found in circumstances? What if hope is meant to be found in relationship? What if hope is intended to be the product of a relationship? That's what Malachi proclaimed to us last week. You see, Malachi was preaching out over the people of God, listen, nation of Israel, stop looking to the circumstances around a new temple. Stop looking to the circumstances around the safety provided by a wall. Stop looking to the circumstances of external obedience to external regulations. Real hope is found where God is. And God has chosen to draw near to his people in steadfast, unchanging love. If Malachi were here, 
he'd proclaim over our congregation, 21st century American, stop looking to circumstances around a vaccine or an election for hope. Real hope is found where God is. And God has chosen to draw near to his people in steadfast, unchanging love. Now, follow me on this. If hope is the product of a relationship, like if hope comes from a relationship, then how we relate to God makes all of the difference in terms of whether or not we'll have real hope in our actual lives. That's what Malachi is going to talk about this morning. You see, Malachi is going to add something to what we said last week. Last week we said real hope is found where God is. God has chosen to draw near to his people in love. And this morning, Malachi is going to communicate to us, this is the big idea, God's people draw near to their God in worship. Real hope is found where God is. God has chosen to draw near to his people in love, and God's people draw near to their God in worship. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Malachi 1. Go ahead and pray with me. Jesus, we love you. God, we thank you that you speak to our hearts from a prophet in an obscure part of, of Palestine 2,400 years ago. God, we thank you for the love that he points us to. And God, this morning, as that prophet is going to challenge us in some very particular ways, God, I pray that you'd give us soft hearts to hear from you what we need to hear. God, that we'd hear the loving challenges of our loving God drawing us into relationship with you. We love you, Jesus. We pray it's all in Jesus' name. Amen. My son, Teddy, started kindergarten this year, which is really hard to believe. And, you know, if you've ever been a parent who sent your kid off to kindergarten, you know that that's very nerve-wracking. Like, you just have no clue what he's going to be like when he gets into that kindergarten classroom. Like, is he going to be the one who bites? Is he going to be the one who can't sit still? Like, what's going to happen here? And uh, we haven't had, a, because of various pandemic concerns, we haven't gotten to, you know, see Teddy in his classroom setting a, a ton. But we have heard snippets of, of how he's interacted there. And one of the things that we've heard is that Teddy in kindergarten class loves to impress people. Like, he loves to look around and have people be impressed by him. I don't know where he gets it from, maybe from his vest-wearing dad. We'll see. Um, but uh, uh, one, of the, one of the things we've seen is that he loves that. Now, there's strengths and weaknesses to being somebody who likes to impress people. Uh, the strengths are uh, pretty clear. You tend to be, you know, a pretty good kid. The weaknesses are, if you're not doing great, you can become maybe less than honest, like this week. So my son, Teddy, was in, uh, in his classroom, and they were learning about George Washington in the kindergarten classroom. Now, I'm a history guy, so that makes my heart happy. They're learning about George Washington, and right in the middle of the lesson, Teddy stops the class, stops his teacher, he stands up, and he says, hey, I want, I want everybody to know something, and I quote, here's what he said, my dad knows George Washington. <laughs> They're best friends. You see, my dad's really old, and he knows all kinds of old people. Now, that's a quote. I got it from the teacher on my phone. And, and in my head, as, I, as I'm getting, reading this text message, I'm thinking, well, that leads to a lot of questions. Like, um, does he think one of you guys is George Washington? And has he seen me hanging out with Pat, which is why he thinks I know all kinds of, of old people? The part that makes sense to me is that Teddy thinks that I'm old. 
One of the things that the pandemic has brought out of me is my inner old man. And so Teddy has heard me uh, giving, for example, old man rants to my wife over and over again over the course of this pandemic, and they've shifted. Do you want to hear about some of my old man rants recently? Do you guys want to hear some of these? Here's one of my old man rants recently. I don't know why it's not socially acceptable to wear slippers in public. I love my slippers. They're the most comfortable shoes that I own, but my wife contends that it is not socially acceptable for an adult male to wear his slippers to Walgreens, for example. How, let's, let's settle a, an argument in the Stringer House. How many of you guys would agree with my wife? Can't wear slippers in public? Yeah, I feel betrayed by all of you. Whatever, it's okay. Here's another one of my old man rants. I think our whole culture would be better if we read newspapers again. Like if we got actual print newspapers where we turn the page and that's where we got our news. In fact, my favorite time every week is on Saturday afternoon. If it's nice outside, listen to how old man this is. I'll take out my lawn chair and I'll sit in my front yard with my slippers and I'll read my newspaper. You can pray for all my neighbors. They think I'm very weird and that's justified. my recent old man rant, though, is related to weddings. Now, I, I've done, a, I've officiated a fair number of weddings, and my favorite part of weddings has, has shifted over the last, I don't know, six months to a year. It used to be that my favorite part of a wedding was when they opened the door in the back and the groom saw the bride for the first time. As a guy who's up on stage officiating a wedding, you get this, like, unique perspective of the, the future husband seeing the future wife. But over the last, oh, six to 12 months, the thing that I like most about weddings has increasingly become the vows. Like I love getting to stand there and watch a husband and a wife covenant to sacrificially love one another for a lifetime. Like I love getting to watch that. Are you ready for my old man rant? The thing I hate about pop culture weddings, like if you're watching, I don't know, This Is Us or Hallmark movie or sitcoms and you see a wedding, the thing I hate about pop culture weddings is they always go light on the vows. Seriously, next time you see a wedding you, and look at the vows, you'll see that they're cotton candy light and usually sarcastic. And me in my basement, I want to, with my slippers, I want to stand up in those moments and yell at the television screen and maybe post a rant on MeWe for all of you guys to like. You see, vows matter in a marriage. They're a husband covenanting with a wife and a wife covenanting with a husband. What was so powerful about what we walked through last week is we got a glimpse of God's vows to his people. Malachi, right at the beginning of this prophecy, gave us a glimpse of the God of the universe extending his vows to his people. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll see God extending vows like this to his people over and over and over again. You'll see God saying things like, hey, I will never leave you or forsake you, Deuteronomy 31.6. You'll see God proclaiming over his people, I will be your God. And you will be my people, Exodus 6, 7. You'll see God proclaiming things like, I will provide for your every need. And in me, you will be satisfied, Psalm 22. You'll see God proclaiming over his people, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be with you, Psalm 23. Or Malachi 1, you'll see God proclaiming over his people, I have loved you. I love you because I love you. These and like 300 other promises are God's vows to his people. And if you're a Christian here, these vows are for you. You need to let them wash over you regularly as you read through God's word. Now, this morning, 
Malachi is going to remind us of the vows that God calls for from his people. So last week, we got a glimpse of God's vows to us. This week, we're going to see Malachi call us to a set of vows to our God. And what's interesting about Christianity is that the vows that God calls for from his people are not perfection, for example. What God calls for from his people is not a set of moral actions. What God calls for from his people is not even kind of participating in the cultural norms of cultural Christianity. God, through Malachi, is going to remind his people that in response to his initiation, in response to his love, in response to his promises to us, in response to all that, what God calls for from his people is their worship. Let's read about it. Malachi 1, starting in verse 6. Malachi writes this. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. And when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to you with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Isn't that hard? I will not accept an offering from your hand. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering for my name. If you like to underline, underline this for not my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is the food, is dis- may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Here's the big idea today. Real hope is found where God is. God has chosen to draw near to his people in love and God's people draw near to their God in worship. And what Malachi has just done for us is to show us what type of worship allows us to draw near to God. And maybe even more specifically, he's shown us what type of worship does not allow God's people to draw near to God. You see, worship in the Bible is way more, hear me, than singing songs. Worship in the Bible is way more than like a segment of a Sunday service. Worship is a life lived in honor, in reverence, biblical word, in in respect, fear of our God. And Malachi has just shown us what that worshipful lifestyle looks like. So notice four things about the sort of worship that provides hope according to Malachi. First, God's people draw near to their God in worshipful 
response, in worshipful response. This isn't directly in our passage, but it is a mega theme in the Bible, so we have to talk about it right at the beginning here. The order matters in Malachi. Notice that Malachi talks about God's love first before he ever talks about our love for God. That is a mega theme in your Bible. All across God's word, what you will see is that God always initiates first. Do you hear me? God always extends grace first. God always pursues first. So, for example, Abraham. Abraham, do you know this, was a pagan worshiper of the sun, moon, and stars. You can read about it in Joshua. Abraham was a pagan worshiper, but God, in Genesis, extends grace to him first and gives him a promise in Genesis 12. We talked about that last week. Or uh, think about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, some of you might have memorized those growing up if you happen to go to church. Do you know the verse right before the Ten Commandments? Exodus 20, verse 2, it goes like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You see, before God expects anything from his people... Before God's people in the wilderness even know the Ten Commandments, God has already miraculously freed them, redeemed them from the single greatest superpower of their day. God moved in love toward them first, or in our book, before God through Malachi ever challenges his people in their worship. The first thing that God through Malachi does is remind his people of his love for them. God reminds his people of the initiating love that proclaims over top of them, I love you because I love you. Now listen, I have to say this because in too many churches, if you don't say something like this, moralism begins to creep in. And sometimes that moralism is stated. Other times that moralism is Unstated. It's just like the air that you breathe. You can feel it culturally as you sit in a church. And moralism sounds like this. If God is going to love you, then you have to be successful. Or if God's going to love you, then you have to be righteous. Or if God's going to love you, you have to be happy or politically conservative, or not have tattoos, or know the worship songs, or not have a messy past, or not, not, certainly not tell anybody about that messy past. And with all of the passion that I can muster, what you need to hear me say is that moralism is pagan nonsense. It is not Christianity. God always moves in love first. God always extends grace First, and then this is Christianity. God's people respond to God's love for us. God's people respond to God's gracious love to us. Here it is in worship. Second, God's people draw near to God, not only in worshipful response, but also in authentic worship. Look at verses six through eight. Let me read them again. A son honors his father, Malachi says, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name, but you have, how you say, how have we despised your name by offering polluted food upon my altar? But you say, how have we polluted you by saying the Lord's table may be despised? When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil. Now notice what's happening here. The people of God and their priests are both saying things about God. They're making professions about God that are not matched with their life. 
So they're saying things that they believe about God, but they're living their life as if they don't believe those things. We have a word for that in our culture. It's the word hypocrisy. The priests and the people were allowing hypocrisy into their worship. They were saying that God is a great father and he's a great master, but their worship did not show it. They were bringing blemished sacrifices to the altar and the priests were accepting blemished sacrifices on the altar. Now, we don't offer sacrifices here in this church. Just in case you were wondering about that, you can go to our new member class. We talk about that, not at all. But we don't offer, we don't offer sacrifices here because Jesus fulfilled all of that. But listen, here's the equivalent for us. It's easy. It's easy in a room like this to sing a song like, My hope in life is Jesus. My joy and prize is Jesus but then to walk out of this room and live our lives as if our hope in life is a vaccine and our joy and prize is the elimination of risk. It's easy to sing. My hope in life is Jesus. My joy and prize is Jesus. But then to walk out of this room and to live our lives as if our hope in life is a political party and our joy and prize is certain number of likes on the memes that we're posting on our social media. Haven't made everybody mad yet. Can I turn it in here on me? It's very easy for me to come into this room, sit right there, and to sing, my hope in life is Jesus. My joy and prize is Jesus. But then to live my life as if my hope in life is a sermon that everybody likes. And my joy and prize is a church where everybody's happy. But listen, hypocritical worship It doesn't draw us near to God. It keeps us from him. And so God through Malachi lovingly challenges his people then and his people now to worship authentically. Let what you proclaim with your mouth about God match what you live in your actual life. And where it does not this morning, you and I, we need to repent. We need to turn to the God who loves us. I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. For, so for just a minute, maybe even just 30 seconds, we're going to take a moment as a church right here online. I'd love for you to do this too. And we're going to spend a moment with the Lord and we're going to ask the question, is my worship, is my life authentic? And where it's not, we're going to confess that to our Savior who loves us. So for just a minute, all heads bowed. I'd love for you to spend a moment with Jesus and ask the question with him, is my worship and life authentic? And where it's not, confess that to him. King Jesus, I confess before my friends from this stage that it's easy, it's easy for my words to be one thing and my life to be another thing. I'm sorry. ask for your forgiveness for that. Thank you for your grace. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Third, 
God's people not only draw near to God in authentic worship, they also draw near to God in devoted worship. Look at verses 9 and 10. Malachi writes this, And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. This is the important part. Follow this. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. You see what's happening here. You can almost see Malachi like looking out over his people and saying, hey, you guys see this, don't you? Like you see the blemished sacrifices, you see the blind animals on the altar and you're not doing anything about it. Oh, that there were people, God is saying, who were passionate about enough about my glory that they would take a stand for that glory. Oh, that there were people, God is saying, who would even stand in front of the doors and not let people walk into the, the temple and participate in that hypocritical worship nonsense that's happening in there right now. You see, everybody is devoted to something. A pandemic has put that on display. If you're wondering what you're devoted to, look at your life right now in the middle of of this time. God through Malachi is asking though, where are the people who are devoted to me? God is looking out over his people. Think about this. And he's asking the question, where are the people who are devoted to me? See, many of us have been to concerts at different points in our life. Doesn't that seem like forever ago? And we're more than willing in concerts to, you know, sing loud, raise our hands in praise of 21 Pilots or Coldplay or whatever the kids are listening to these days. And God is asking, where is that passion for the one true God? Many of us, we care about sports teams. Like viscerally, like we can feel it in. We care about the, the way that those sports teams play on a Saturday night or on a Sunday afternoon. And God through Malachi is asking the question, where is that sort of passion in your relationship with the one true God? Or can I turn it in on myself? Many of us daydream about a lot of things. I found myself daydreaming a lot about vacations. Daydreaming about trips and it occupies my mind and I've uh, Kate and I we plan and we save and we skimp and eventually we risk COVID exposure so that we can get away and and God through Malachi is asking the question where is that sort of passion in your worship of the one true God you see half-hearted worship does not draw us near to God it keeps us from him so God through Malachi is lovingly challenging his people then and his people now to worship devotedly let your worship Malachi is saying be marked by the sort of passion that befits the the king of the universe the lord of hosts are you devoted in your worship or are you half-hearted I felt the lord challenging me in that in this week and where it's not devoted worship where you do not have devoted worship, we need to repent and turn to a God who loves us. I want to give us space to do that this morning. So for just a moment, 30 seconds like before, we're going to take some time here. And if if you're online, I'd love for you to do this online as well. And I'd love for you before the Lord just to ask the question, is my worship, is my life devoted? And where it's not, to confess that to Jesus. So take a moment, do that right now.
Jesus, I confess that in this season at different times, my worship has grown cold, half-hearted. Before my friends, I confess that to you and I ask for your forgiveness. Jesus, thank you for your grace toward me. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Fourth, God's people draw near to their God, according to Malachi, in cheerful worship. Look at verses 12 to 14. Malachi writes this, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, this is the important part, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. So you can see what's happening here, can't you? Especially if you happen to be around a farm or or have a farm yourself, you can guess what these clever planters, clever herders are doing. Well, see, God in Leviticus requires the people of God to, to make a sacrifice to him three different times a year. And so these clever herders are thinking, well, my sacrifice can kill two birds with one stone. Every, every herd has, has different males in that herd that will be, I don't know, genetically inferior to the other males. They, they smaller, they'll have defects. And any good herder would then take those males out of the herd so that the male could not pass its genes on to the next generation. In fact, many families in this, in this uh, time would, would take those males and they would eat them. The, the genetically inferior ones would become the food for the family because they tasted the same and they didn't want the genetic material in the next generation. So think about this. Here's what the clever herders are doing. They're thinking, well, I can give, kill two birds, so to speak, with one stone. I was going to cull or kill that, that, uh, that male anyways, and, and why don't I just bring it and have it be sacrificed? The priest will look the other way because it'll taste the same, and, and I'll, uh, I'll be able to, to skirt around some of the requirements of what God has required of me in the law. And Malachi, God through Malachi, has challenged the people in their selfishness there. He's challenged the way that these herders are cutting corners with their sacrifices and with their giving. And in response, the people of God, you see it? They say, what a weariness this is. Even think about this. They snort at the God of the universe. You see, there are two kinds of worshipers. There are cheerful worshipers. And then there are begrudging worshipers. And what God's calling out is the begrudging worship that is begun to build in his people. So for example, both worshipers might give. But the way that a cheerful worshiper gives and the way that a begrudging worshiper gives will be drastically different. You see, begrudging worshipers will give the minimum required to get God off their back and to feel like they're okay. And eventually we see in our passage, they'll begin cutting corners with their giving. Cheating is what uh, Malachi says. But cheerful worshipers give what God has called them to give sacrificially, but joyfully. They give the best of what they have to honor the God in whom they have joy. And there's a real difference there. You see, begrudging worshipers are focused in our passage on the giving, on what's required of them. But cheerful worshipers are focused on their God. 
and his grace toward them that is overabundant and then overflows in their worship of God. And this idea, it doesn't just apply to financial giving, although it does apply there. There are begrudging financial givers. What's the minimum that I can give and feel like God will be off my back? And how can I make sure to give in such a way that I maximize the benefit for me? There, but there are also begrudging givers of time. You know that, don't you? Like, God, how much time do I have to give you in order to feel like I'm okay? Like, Sunday mornings, I'll give you an hour, and maybe that guy will talk long, maybe like an hour and 10 minutes. That's enough, right? Or can I, can I be honest with you guys? Here's where the Lord's been challenging me. There's begrudging giving of gifting and talent. Like, this is what God has called me to for a lifetime. And there are strengths and weaknesses to being a pastor, but the reality is there are some times where I, have, I can't clock out. Like there are days where I'm, I'm still working when most people aren't working. And my, my default is to begin to become a begrudging giver of my vocation to the Lord. God forbid that. But listen, begrudging worship does not draw us near to God. It keeps us from God. So God through Malachi challenges his people lovingly then and his people now to worship cheerfully. We get to use our time, talent, and treasure to be a part of the biggest, most glorious story in all of the history of humanity. That's good news, friends, and we cheerfully get to be a part of that. And where we are not cheerful worshipers in light of what God has invited us into, friends, we need to repent this morning. And turn to a God who loves us. I want to give us space to do that. We're going to spend just a moment. It's the last time we'll do this. 30 seconds. And I want you to ask the question before the Lord. Is my worship, is my life cheerful? And where it's not, confess that to Jesus. Take a moment to do that. Jesus, I confess before my friends that it is easy for me to let my giving of time, talent, and treasure become begrudging giving rather than cheerful giving. Forgive me for that. Thank you for your grace to me. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Big idea. Real hope is found where God is. God has chosen to draw near to us in love. And God's people draw near to their God in cheerful, authentic, devoted worship. That's what Malachi is trying to communicate to us this morning. Now, as I close, we have to deal with two more questions very quickly. The first question we have to deal with is, why does any of this matter? Like, why does it matter how we worship? Why does Malachi care so much about God's people's worship? And then the second question we have to ask is, how do we hope to live this? Like, what hope do we have to actually have cheerful, authentic, devoted worship? Where's our hope in this passage? So first question first. Our worship matters not because our salvation is at stake. Do you hear me? 
Like God's not up in heaven as the spiritual equivalent of Santa Claus. You know, he's got the, the hypocritical list and the authentic list. He's got the cheerful list and the begrudging list. And if you happen to find yourself on the bad list, you'll get the spiritual equivalent of a lump of coal in your stocking. That's not what God is like. But listen, here's what Malachi says. The way we worship matters because it preaches about God to our world. Look at verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. For in every place, incense will be offered to my name, a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. You see, when God's people bring hypocritical, begrudging, half-hearted worship to their God, they show God to be insignificant, insufficient, and unworthy. Friends, we're living in a cultural moment where too many Christians have spent too many uh, years bringing half-hearted, inauthentic, hypocritical, and begrudging worship. So our culture increasingly views God as insignificant, unworthy, and insufficient. But when God's people repent, that's what we've been doing this morning, in case you were wondering. When God's people repent and renew their worship, all throughout history, God moves. Because when when God's people worship rightly, a watching world sees our God for who he is. A great, glorious, holy, loving, gracious Lord of hosts. Church, what our world needs in 2020 more than anything else is your worship. Do you hear me? What our world needs right now is Christians who are willing to worship authentically. We're willing to worship devotedly. We're willing to worship cheerfully. And then the world will begin to see God for who he is. And by his grace, Lord willing, he'll begin to change things in this place. So question, what hope do we have to live this in our actual lives? Well, follow me on this. God does not just command our worship. He compels it to God doesn't just call us to worship. He also compels our worship. If you have your Bibles, turn all the way right. Go towards the end of the New Testament, Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4. If you don't, the verses will be right up on the screen. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Since then, we have a great high priest. This is verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then think about this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, we don't have the priests that they had in Malachi's day. Praise God. We do have a perfect priest. We have the sort of priest we need. His name is Jesus. And Jesus, according to the writer of Hebrews, stepped into human history 2,000 years ago at the first Christmas, pursuing us. And he lived the life that we should have lived. He lived a perfect, sinless life, tempted in all the ways that we were, yet without sin. And not only that, he willingly walked step by step to a Roman cross where he'd pay the penalty for every one of the sins that we just confessed this morning. You see, Every time we confess because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we confess before a throne of grace. Every time we bring our half-hearted worship to Jesus, do you know what he responds with? 
He extends grace and mercy to us. Every time we bring the reality of our begrudging worship before our Savior, do you know what he does? He extends grace and mercy to us. You see, as Christians, we know something that the people of Israel didn't know. We know that real hope is found in Jesus. Jesus is drawn near to us at the cost of his very life in love. And in response to that glorious and gracious sacrifice, we draw near to Jesus with a life of worship, authentic, devoted, cheerful worship. This is Christianity. We look to Jesus and he compels the worship that he calls us to. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the center of the Christian message. The Christian message is not try harder, do better, and then God will like you. The Christian message is that Jesus has done all that is necessary to save you. And when you receive that salvation, you get to live the rest of your life in worshipful response to Jesus's love for you. Some of you, you need to step over the line of faith, receive salvation from the savior of the world today and live the rest of your life in the response that is worship. Some of you need to stop looking to pleasure and power and safety for your salvation and look to the only one who can truly save. His name is Jesus. Receive that salvation and spend the rest of your life in response. Real hope is found where God is. God has chosen to draw near to his people in love. God's people draw near to their God in worship. And Jesus, by his grace, compels the worship that he calls us to. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your grace. God, as we've spent the morning bringing sin before your throne, we thank you that we bring it before a throne of grace and that you extend mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace to us. God, I pray for my friends. God, I pray that where our worship is not where it should be, that we'd bring that to you. And God, we'd have a tangible sense of your love, grace, and forgiveness for us. God, I pray for my friends who don't know you. God, I pray that they would look to you for salvation this morning, this morning. They'd surrender their life to you and that they'd get to live the rest of their life in the response of authentic, cheerful, devoted worship. We love you, Jesus. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about fellowship or how to get connected, visit our website at fbclife.org and follow us on social media, 417 Fellowship.